0: This week's episode is brought to you by the Weekly Goat Line. Give us a call at 424-785-4628 and we'll play your message on the last episode in a few weeks. That's 424-785-4628.
1: and welcome to CommuniCore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And
0: I'm Jeff. And we've been looking at uh, the, the creation of Disneyland the last two weeks, and then this week we're going to jump right into the ending portion, and spoiler, it's pretty successful.
1: <laughs> I was going to say, I remember the first instructions we got, just just add water. Yeah, yeah, and, and that it worked so well. Yeah, it was a mess. That's how we ended up with Disney's California Adventure.
0: That is very true. Anytime water falls from the sky here in Southern California, none of, none of us know what to do anymore, apparently. And it's an adventure. It, it,
1: well, I don't know if it's an adventure, but... Well, I mean, you spent years driving through snow and ice in New Jersey. I did, but these people yeah, have you not. Did. you so, did. So, nightmare. Yeah, that's true, that's true. A little bit of water everywhere, oh yeah. Yes. What a mess. Yes. All right, let's right. Let's let's talk about Disneyland. It's time for Disney hits.
0: So for the last two weeks we've been talking about Disneyland's creation, and we left off with ABC agreeing to foot the bill for Disneyland itself in exchange for a weekly television program
1: from the Disney Studios with Walt himself hosting with studio funds depleted and all credit exhausted the abc deal granted walt the finances to forge ahead with disneyland many though initially saw this agreement as a double-edged sword the studio had the money to proceed with disneyland but was now saddled with the extra work involved with uh, piloting a television series financing in hand walt and roy turned their attention towards acquiring land in anaheim this however proved much more difficult than
0: expected Their preferred parcel of 160 acres could more accurately be described as parcels, close to 20 of them in fact, and each with a completely different owner. So, the summer of 1954 was one of long negotiation, with Walt growing increasingly anxious to seal the deal and get started. But, happily, by the end of the summer, all of the contracts were signed and the ground had finally been broken.
1: Almost from the very first day, construction moved at a snail's pace and Disneyland began running over budget. This was particularly worrisome because there was little wiggle room in the construction timetable. After all, opening day was scarcely a year away. These problems were hardly surprising. Disneyland was a first-of-its-kind project and the Imagineers of Wed Enterprises were learning how to build an amusement park on the fly. However, this internal art and design crew was under the very capable supervision of Dick Irvine. So Irvine had come from
0: 20th Century Fox and brought many of his former co-workers to win. So these new additions, skilled in movie production and cinematic techniques, brought crucial knowledge and experience um, of working in three-dimensional set pieces. But for all of their experience, these designers had never worked on an amusement park. So WED might have been wet behind the ears, but the Imagineers were savvy enough to learn from their competitors.
1: A small group from WED, uh, the employees embarked on a barnstorming trip to visit as many existing amusement parks as possible. From the East Coast to New Orleans to Disney's neighbors in California, they studied what thrilled and what flopped in each park. However, this group met with a common refrain from the industry uh, veterans around the country. Disneyland, Disneyland will end in tears. Walt's abandonment of traditional amusement
0: park and carnival tropes would mean failure. Uh, the critics had been predicting Walt's demise for years, so this feedback did little to shake his faith. So, adding to Disneyland's slow progress was Walt's constant supervision. His critical eye and insistence on perfection exacerbated the building schedule, and every last detail had to be just so, or it just would have no place in Disneyland.
1: While Walt was no stranger to delays and expanding budgets, ABC was less than pleased with Disneyland's progress. The park's costs had already far exceeded what Roy had quoted during negotiations, and the finish line was still over the horizon. But the Disneyland project had crossed the point of no return, and there was no way back now. However, ABC was thrilled with the studio's television show, the aptly named Disneyland. From the very first episode on October 27th, 1954,
0: Walt captivated the nation's imagination with his weekly program of live action and animated wonder, and of course, frequent updates on Disneyland's attractions. This unique mixture of an advertisement and entertainment whetted his, a- his audience's appetite for the park's opening in July 1955. The show was a smash hit, enjoying high ratings and amassing a very large following. What had first appeared as a necessary concession to secure funding for Disneyland
1: was no longer a burden. In those frantic final months of construction, workers hustled to get ready for the park's opening. The Disney studio was cutting it so close that final testing for the more elaborate aspects of Disneyland, such as the fireworks spectacular and the railroad, did not get underway until there were just mere weeks left. As the last tweaks and touches were added, Disneyland finally sat ready to welcome its first
0: visitors. The main street station of the Disneyland and Santa Fe Railroad, perched above the main gates, welcomed visitors to this happy place. The turn of the century shops and town square of Main Street USA provided a charming stroll into yesteryear before leading it to Disneyland's main hub at the center of the park. Standing proudly in Disneyland's hub was the park's centerpiece, Sleeping Beauty Castle. It was undoubtedly the quintessential expression of Walt's majestic vision for
1: Disneyland. The iconic castle, in all of its glory, was purposely built smaller than most might have expected. Dave Smith, Disney's former chief archivist, explained that, quote, Walt did not want a large castle at Disneyland because he felt that the medieval European tyrants had built huge castles to intimidate the peasants. Walt wanted a small, friendly castle instead, end quote. And there has never been a friendlier castle than the one found at Disneyland. And it's so weird considering the other ones are so massively huge,
0: so, like, that whole well, thing is out the window. Basically, Walt just called us peasants. That's true, that's what happens. Hmm. So, Sleeping Beauty Castle also served a far more practical purpose, acting as the park's main weenie. So, Walt himself created this term to explain how guests could be drawn to the castle at the park center, much like a dog could be led around by a hot dog. So, to this day, Sleeping Beauty Castle remains the landmark that draws uh, visitors into the heart of Disneyland. And though the castle lays, uh, through, through the castle lays Disneyland's true star, Fantasyland.
1: Dark rides of the studio's animated classics were plentiful, allowing guests to become a part of the story in a way never before imagined. Themed perfectly, Fantasyland was a world of enchantment come to life. Pristine walkways meandered into the richly themed Adventureland and the rough and tumble western outposts of Frontierland. These lands, uh, less focused on rides, enticed guests to become part of the action. Adventureland's Jungle Cruise, in particular, quite literally set guests a sail for parts unknown. So Sleeping Beauty Castle was
0: not the only weenie in Disneyland. Wed also used the Mark Twain Riverboat and the Rocket to the Moon to attract guests to either side of the park. Those who had followed the rocket to the moon siren song in Tomorrowland might have felt the twins of disappointment upon entrance. For a man so fascinated by the future and advancing technology, Walt can never get Tomorrowland quite up to his own standards. In fact, Wed, uh, Wed tried to convince him to leave Tomorrowland unfinished until after
1: Disneyland opened, but Walt wouldn't hear of it and overruled his Imagineers. In terms of attractions, the original Tomorrowland opened rather bare, but the Imagineers certainly nailed the aesthetics of a futuristic world. Even conceding a slightly underwhelming Tomorrowland, Walt's vision had been realized. Disneyland was truly spectacular. At long last, it was time to throw open the gates and see if the adoring public agreed. So, as the sun rose on July 17, 1955,
0: Disneyland was just hours from its debut. That Sunday was technically the park's preview event, and it was a by-invitation-only crowd of celebrities and sponsors that were expected. However, a lot of counterfeiting went on of the invitation, and that caused the limited crowd to swell far
1: beyond expectations. This opener was no local event, for ABC had agreed to broadcast it nationwide. With a hosting trio of Art Linkletter, Robert Cummings, and a youthful Ronald Reagan... Both Disney and ABC had a lot riding on this broadcast. In fact, the network had been rehearsing with on-site camera crews for nearly two months in advance. Now it was up to Disneyland to make a good first impression. And by the time ABC's cameras went live and Walt had ridden the Disneyland and Santa Fe Railroad into the Main Street Station, guests were already flooding into the park. If one lesson was to be learned on this opening day, it was that Disneyland was a
0: remarkable triumph. Yet one that was not quite ready for the prime time. It was a product, a project of unprecedented scale, leaving no room for error or ill fortune. But unfortunately, July seventeenth would bring plenty of both of those things. Opening day was incredibly hot, and from the beginning, the heat was on for Disney and the Disneyland staff and Walt himself.
1: Heeled shoes sank into the new asphalt streets and walkways. A plumber's strike rendered the water fountains barren, restroom lines snaked around the park as did those for the restaurants, that is, those that had not run out of food by lunchtime. Rides were breaking down left and right, forcing the crowds back into the already congested open areas. To say the least, Disneyland's opening day lacked a bit of the customary Disney magic. The media reaction to this event was understandably skewered negative.
0: But the public, always Walt's bread and butter, was not swayed by these less-than-glowing reports. That first crowd may have been unimpressed by the many snafus and snubbles, but they were also entranced by Walt's creation of a new way for families to spend time together. So July 18th, Disneyland's first official day of operation, turned out much better. Opening at 10am sharp, two children were escorted through the gates by Walt himself as the first official guest of Disneyland.
1: Although much calmer, the park could not completely escape the misadventures of the previous day. A gas leak in Fantasyland caused an afternoon shutdown, and a dishwasher malfunction left one of the restaurants shuddering during the midday rush. Disneyland was no finished product, but instead a land of magical possibilities. Thankfully for Walt and company, the public was willing to bet that Disney would realize that potential sooner rather than later. Walt Park not only survived a plague-ridden opening, but it emerged on the other side stronger than ever. By the end of its first week, over
0: 160,000 people had walked through the Disneyland turnstiles. The people had spoken and Disneyland was a winner. Walt knew that a debt of gratitude was owed to the many people whose contributions made Disneyland possible. And, being a showman, he created an unspoken testament to these people as part of Disneyland's show in the Main Street windows. So high above the crowd, they act as the opening credits and thank the group who refused to give up on Walt's dream.
1: The story of Disneyland is one of perseverance. Walt never relinquished his dream, even when he was the only one who believed in it. The creative geniuses of WED did not turn back when confronted with seemingly impossible objectives. And while investors and money men frequently get a bad name for putting profit and business above all else, they too remained entrenched. When Disneyland broke ground, the studio had budgeted under $5 million for its creation. And of course, by opening day, the price tag had ballooned to
0: $17 million. So everyone involved went toe-to-toe with a world that told them it could never be done. And instead of stepping back into the shadows, the heroes of Disneyland persevered, and millions of fans from all across the world will forever be thankful for that. So it's amazing how the, you know this story of, you know people telling him no, it's never gonna work, and it just turned into this
1: massive global phenomenon. And especially a story that all of us, you know, Disney enthusiasts and historians are so intimately familiar with. It's sometimes fun to see it again broken down like this. Yeah,
0: and the little minute details we may not have realized have went into the actual before the park opened portion of the story. He's a nerd. He's a a geek. He's a geek. But we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week.
1: The Hammer of Thor is the second book in the Magnus Chase and the Gods of Asgard series by Rick Riordan, and of course I reviewed book one a while ago and loved it. But in this book, Thor's hammer goes missing again, and it's up to Magnus and his group of friends to get it back before Loki can unleash Ragnarok on the nine worlds. And like Riordan's other series, Percy Jackson, The Kane Chronicles, he takes us deep into the mythology to provide characters that help entertain and educate and I'm really a huge fan of Riordan and I'm glad to see the Magnus Chase series about Norse mythology continue. Uh, the Hammer of Thor like Riordan's other books is very fast-paced very well written and I marveled at the wordplay that he was able to use especially since so much of the humor is tongue-in-cheek and honestly there's a lot that's in there for parents and adults that are going to get that the kids aren't going to get. Um, Like a really good Princess Bride reference, it's fantastic. (laughs) Anyway, so Magnus Chase and his friends are pulled into another quest with the help of various demigods of Norse legend. So we find out that the giants stole the hammer of Thor and that the God of Thunder is bemoaning the loss of Mjolnir mainly because of the number of channels it receives. Yeah, it's a high-definition hammer. Uh, But this leads the group into a quest to retrieve items to bargain with the giants who want to defeat Thor. Again, it's a plot that involves Loki, the trickster god, and eventually Ragnarok. And and Thor, again, as a character, like in the first book, is completely unexpected and really helps liven up the storyline. I mean, he's really a heavy metal buffoon, for lack of a better term, but it's still great. Um, So Riordan introduces a new character who has a direct tie to Loki. And I'll use the female pronoun of she, but she's an important member of Magnus's group. Uh, the character is also gender fluid and she does change between being a boy and a girl. And I'm really glad that Riordan created this character and ties her directly into Norse mythology, especially the fact that Loki, the trickster god, could change his sex at will. Uh, you know, this is, I thought this was a great thing for Riordan to do, especially for kids who might have a hard time identifying with characters in modern literature or might need uh, to see a very positive role model in how they're feeling themselves. So, as I sort of mentioned earlier, Riordan does a wonderful job of tying pop culture and geekdom into his books. There's a section in which Magnus and his gang has to battle with giants in a bowling alley Yeah, with Prince references in it. You know, the artist. I was like, that's cool. I love it. Anyway, so The Hammer of Thor is a great read for tweens, teens, and adults. It's got great pacing, and Riordan really does impart a lot of education in the process. And of course, Marvel fans will enjoy the more traditional view of the gods, like Thor and Loki, but this book does not take place in the Marvel Universe at all. Regardless, The Hammer of Thor is a great read. Highly suggested, two Monniers up, if I can do that. You can't lift them. <laughs> I know, I can't. So anyway, this week's book is The Hammer of Thor by Rick Riordan. Don't know what you know till we know you, you. know you just don't know there's one little fact we bet you did one little fact we bet you didn't know. So on my last couple of visits to Bush Gardens Tampa I've really enjoyed the food and I've sat inside of some of the dining halls and marveled at the number of people and I wondered in an average day, who eats more food, the people attending the park or the animals? So I reached out to the Bush Gardens Twitter uh, handle, and they responded that the animals consume much more food than the people, which kind of surprised me. But then again, I'm not sure how many cheeseburgers or Caesar salads that elephants eat offhand. But now we know you. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat.
0: <laughs> In the Festival of Fantasy Parade at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, there are tons of amazing floats. But one of them holds a nice little tribute to a parade of the years past. So on the Little Mermaid float, there's the Sebastian, who is leading the charge uh, uh, for the front of the float itself. So that Sebastian is actually from Spectro Magic. It was on the Little Mermaid float for years and years. So he must really love parades if he if he came back to that.
1: Yeah, I was really disappointed that you didn't talk about the Dole Whip float. Or I'm not a fan I, of the Dole Whip float. I know, but still, we could have talked about floats. I just like the regular old Dole Whip. Why does it got to be fancy? Well, I was just trying just trying to tie the float into it. All right, I understand. You know? I get it. You people like the float. Exactly, And speaking of float, well, no, that wasn't a good segue. Hold on. I've got a better one. Slightly. Not really. Here we go. But um, in case you weren't aware, the year of a million or so limited time cadets weekly prize contest is about to float away. You're right. It wasn't forever. Good. Darn it. I tried. You tried. Uh, you know, if I plan these out better. Anyway. Yeah, like we so, ever do. Exactly. So for almost the past two years, we've been giving a prize away every week, and we are dwindling down to the last few episodes, there's still time to get your name in. you got five weeks. Oof, yeah, okay. five right. weeks. It's getting close. Yes. So just send an email to communicorweekly at gmail.com with your name and address, and we'll enter you into the weekly prize drawing. And Jeff, take it away. So this week's prize winner is going to get a Communicor Weekly prize pack, and that winner
0: is... Carrie D from Valley Mills, Texas. Congratulations, Carrie! I hope you enjoy Yay. whatever we send you, and if you get a chance, take a photo of yourself with it and
1: send a, send the photo along. We'd love to see what it yeah. is you got. Now, Jeff, you don't have a big map on your wall with little pins of where you sent all these prizes. Uh, well, do you? I do have a big map on my wall, but not with <laughs> pins in it. So <laughs> you were close. Well, I thought this was the ultimate Communicore Weekly stalking.
0: So we got a just how of far these... our reach ha- has gone throughout the United States.
1: Exactly, because it's too expensive to ship overseas.
0: Yeah, yeah. We're not really too yeah. much in Wyoming,
1: I don't think. I'm looking at the map. No. That's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting.
0: Maybe we no, don't that's maybe okay. not
1: have the internet there. That's the only explanation. Ooh. Anyway. Yeah, so thank you guys so much for watching and
0: listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. However you get the show, whether it's on YouTube
1: or from iTunes, leave us a comment, leave us a rating. We'd love to hear what you think. And again, email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave a comment about the show, enter the contest, or just say howdy. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com
0: slash
1: Weekly. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm at Imagine He's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, give us a call on the Communicor Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. And visit the Communa store on our website at Communicoreweekly.com where you can pick up some incredible t-shirts. And there's still some time left to get your
0: official cadet membership card or sticker. Just send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communacore Weekly PO Box 432 Orange, California 92856.
1: I sent like four out today, no lie. So get Ooh, them in. They're still going. Mm-hmm. All right. And you can visit Patreon.com slash Weekly to see how you two can support the greatest online show. For Jeff Heimbach, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff
0: Heimbach. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show.
1: Spicy.